Welcome to Two Daves in the Dock. Today we have the pleasure of having Dr. Vivian Rath with us to talk about a PhD in higher education administration. Let's join the conversation. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of Two Daves and a Doc. And today we are joined by the esteemable Dr. Vivian Rath. And see, I got to put doctor in front of things because you've done the work, you've made the effort, and here you are. Colin doesn't like it because, you know, he, he, he's just this anti-academic kind of guy. But all that to be said, Vivian, it is an, an absolute honor to have you on with us today. And so with that being said, let's get a little bit of information on who you are, what you've done, and what you're planning on doing on this great planet of ours. Uh, thank you very much, Dave. Yeah, I, I have to agree with Colin. I sometimes uh, feel a little bit uh, uncomfortable with that doctor uh, title. I've been so used to Vivian. I think Vivian will do just, just fine, or even Viv to my friends, if I have any friends, that is. Uh, but I have just uh, completed my PhD on the social engagement experiences of disabled students in higher education in Ireland. And uh, I can tell you guys, it is such a weight uh, to, uh, and relief to be finished at this point. But what is more exciting is the, the journey I'm now on to, uh, to get that research out there and to inform people about it and to try and bring about change. Uh, and my research uh, was focused on the experiences of disabled students uh, in higher education. And, the, from a literature review and from my own experiences, uh, I, I soon was, uh, became aware that there was very little um, research on the social engagement uh, of disabled students. And in actual fact, there was no published research in Ireland on it. Uh, so I'm, I'm the kind of person that really believes in, in the importance of that wider experience in college uh, and that outside of the academic uh, of being able to develop those transferable skills and also just to practice uh, some of what you had you may have learned uh, but uh, critical to that I had you know four questions and, and around that you know what are the barriers and enablers uh, to that experience and engagement and um, what are disabled students sense of belonging within their higher education uh, uh, and also of course then the last two questions focused on the national and institutional policy and practice and how that enables uh, or the opposite, uh, their social engagement. Uh, so that, that's what I focused on. But what was great about it was that I actually got huge buy-in um, and uh, that uh, so I would have interviewed and undertaken um, focus groups with students with disabilities, graduates uh, with disabilities, um, SU officers, uh, and but also then as well uh, senior managers and senior managers included registrars, vice presidents, deans of students uh, and then finally uh, was disability officers. So what it did was it gave me a great um, spread across the college uh, which placed the student at the centre uh, and then all of the different layers outside of that student uh, giving me a, a really good feel of, of what was happening uh, and what, where those enablers or barriers existed for the student. Um, and of course, it's important, it's really important to, to note that I very much took a transformative uh, viewpoint with um, using Bronfenbrenner's bioecological model. And I don't want to get too caught up in the uh, theory and the philosophical aspects, but the key, the key here 
was that I was putting the human rights and the social justice uh, aspects of the, the study really at the heart of it and placing the students at the heart of it. Um, so there was, I mean, at this point now uh, that uh, it's about trying to implement some changes and I mean, the, the results have been really interesting from that uh, in, in terms of that, what, although students, almost all students identified that they had a social engagement experience, almost all of them identified that they faced barriers to this. Uh, uh, that it was also quite interesting to note that uh, in terms of sense of belonging, that, uh, you know, most students felt that they had a sense of belonging with the college, but they were uncertain about their sense of belonging in their class, uh, which I thought was really interesting. And, uh, that, uh, and, and, and a kind of a point associated with that was the whole idea uh, that half, half of those participants felt that there was no disability awareness in their college. Mm. Uh, and uh, that, uh, I think some of those points you know, really say a lot. And, and some of them result in asking further questions about what is happening in our college uh, and colleges and what kind of climate are we creating within our college? Uh, so I think so, th those are just some of the, uh, some parts of, uh, of my research journey so far. That's incredible. I mean, uh, just the background and the history there. And, you know, how did you come into your PhD? I mean, what was your prior experience before asking those ostensible questions? Uh, well, it's actually, I think that's a really important point because uh, uh, my previous experience uh, probably brought me along this path. I mean, when I started uh, higher education, just to, I suppose it's worth noting, uh, for your listeners, I'm a disabled person uh, that, uh, and I've had a disability from a very young age and uh, that uh, when I attended college or began college, uh, that less than 1% of the student population had a disability. Mm. Uh, so I was very much in the minority uh, and that I lived on campus and that I, I remember then in my, I think it was my second year that my brother came to college and he lived with me and and then my friend uh or, or well he wasn't my friend well he became my friend i should say <laughs> uh, another gentleman tom uh, who was who was blind he, he joined us uh, and what happened then was that suddenly i was no longer in the minority suddenly i had a group and that i became, started became very involved and uh, then we met other disabled people on campus and suddenly we set up a group a peer group uh, called the Inclusion Participation and Awareness Society uh, to campaign for uh, sports facilities for disabled people. Uh, and we set up a wheelchair basketball team with the help of the Irish Wheelchair Association. And so, but it was true that then that, you know, I developed connections, friends, those barriers didn't seem to be as big a problem. They still existed, uh, but, um, despite the fact of all our campaigning that when work we did, there were still many people who with significant disabilities or, or other kinds of disabilities who actually still couldn't socially engage. And it was after I did my, uh, I, sorry, I should say I did a degree in pharmacology uh, and I didn't have much time for socializing. So my lab work may have suffered a little bit, uh, <laughs> but, uh, but hey, 
so yeah, so th th then I went on to do a master's in um, management in Smurfit. Uh, and uh, it was during that I did the, my dissertation on the employment of graduates with disabilities. And what I learned from that uh, research was that what disabled uh, graduates were saying was that when they went to interview, uh, that they actually didn't have those extra things to talk about on their CV. So they didn't have that involvement in clubs or societies. Uh, they didn't have that work experience to talk about. And they found that a real barrier to entry. Uh, and what employers were saying, well, you know, these students are only doing their degree. Uh, and, you know, often, or in some cases, um, that uh, those students were, were you know, they, they were, you know, like myself, a two-one degree, maybe because of extra barriers and whatever. And so there wasn't extra additions to add to that CV. So, um, so it soon became apparent to me that this, you know, was was an issue, and it was something that I really wanted to get into. And uh, so, yeah, I I applied uh, to uh, Trinity College Dublin uh, to to do a PhD in the area. It's fascinating, and uh, honestly, uh, one of the things that impressed me even in the last week was the, the fact that you've managed out of your PhD to condense it into an article that you've published recently uh, that is uh, accessible and understandable for everyone on the far side of it. So it's something that I would recommend everyone going and, and having a read through it because you talk about your experience going through there uh, and those those pieces, which I think you know a lot of people coming out of a PhD don't or, or can't do. You know, they, they can't really, in simple terms, explain what the impact has been and what you've learned out the far side of it. So I think that's a really useful piece for people to go back and, and have a look at some of those elements. And I think, you know, we have a lot of people here who are going through the PhD process who might not uh, be familiar with the different disability services and elements that, that come with universities, because it isn't, I suppose, uh, in, their, in their vision at, at, at that moment in time. But one of the things that might be useful for anyone listening to this and who is kind of curious about it, even in terms of a wider picture, is even maybe to give some context around uh, this sector within Ireland, some of the challenges that are here. Uh, and it might be good to start off with the ratification for the UN Convention for the Rights of Persons with People with Disabilities, because I think that's an area that uh, even externally to all this that you're involved with too. So if you could give us a little, just a little bit of a, a framing around that, it'd be, it'd be super. Absolutely, David. Uh, that I, can I just, one little point I'd like to make there, you mentioned about uh, discussing my own experience, right? And in terms of PhDs, I think you're, you're right there. It's really, it can be hard uh, for people who have either done or uh, are doing their PhD to, to, uh, to bring in their own experience. Um, because they're often afraid, uh, you're afraid that it's going to uh, be seen as impacting upon the results or it's impacting upon people's view of what you're doing and that people might consider, you know, you're some way biased. Um, but I think it's better to call that out uh, that, and to, to recognize it. And during my PhD process, uh, that was something that I would have done a lot is, is reflecting on that and writing about that. Um, and recognizing it uh, because, you know, it's just not possible to take the person out of the research. Uh, and that is really important to, to acknowledge that. And, you know, it takes a, lo a lot of time. And I'm not even like, I've been doing my PhD forever, but uh, I still haven't gotten that right yet. But I'm really, I'm something I'm working on and not trying not to be afraid of. 
um, that, uh, and I think sometimes you have to ask yourself the question, well, what, are, what am I trying to achieve here? And what I want to do is I want to, uh, I want to bring about change uh, with my results. I want disabled students in higher education to have the same social engagement opportunities as every other student. In actual fact, I want to see that across all of society because this is a major barrier uh, across society. But, um, so how do, how do I do that? Well, then you have to look at that and you have to say, well, there's, you know, I was part of this research. Why did I, how did I come to that research? And then try and convey that across. So um, I'd say to any PhD student out there, you know, recognize it, call it out, write about it um, and get it, get it down on paper. And I think um, don't be afraid to do that because uh, it has to come back to what you want to achieve from this and uh, moving forward from that. So uh, I think that's an important point to, to know. That's a super important point in that, because I think the distinction that we found is most of the people that we've had yourself included now on as guests with us have done, you know, impact work work that means something beyond academia or beyond isolation. So, you know what I mean? It's inherently all of us, all of us on this call and most of the guests we've had, they, they want a greater impact than just research or a publication or a PhD. They want to leave lasting work. So in that case, it's an awful lot easier, you could say, for us to do that because we have a greater, you know, a more meaningful North Star kind of to aim towards for want of a better kind of descriptor. But I think that's, you're dead right, that the fact is everyone has biases. Anyone that tells you they don't have an inherent bias towards a topic <laughs> is lying to you. You know they're what I mean? Biased. You can't, biased. <laughs> yeah. can't doubly biased. But you can't kind of hide it. You're right. You need to recognize it. If you're doing a traditional scientific PhD where you're doing subwork of someone else's subwork of some research group subwork, that's perfectly fine. That's uh, that's that's the scientific process. But recognize, as you said, your biases, your leanings towards it. And then if you're doing impact-led research, those biases could be huge advantages as well. So I'd agree with it in 100%. Like we're very similar. Our work is all different, but our motivation behind it is to leave lasting improvement for not just ourselves, but for other people in general. So that's kind of important to do it and it's, it's, it's very important and that's why we've when we've seen it as well the fact that now access and disability and all has been included in the united nations charter in particular is now so impactful because it gives it a much loftier position than it had before so we can it, it hopefully well you know more about it than me so maybe if you want to tell uh, us. yeah sorry i'm sorry david I, I got oh, you weren't getting away with it i was coming back to you don't worry sidetracked <laughs> Uh, uh, yeah, so yeah, the Irish, the, uh, the International uh, Human Rights uh, and Equality Committee have now established uh, here in Ireland a Disability Advisory Committee uh, for the purposes of uh, monitoring the implementation of the United Nations Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities. Um, and that it, it was ratified here in Ireland, one of the last countries in Europe, by the way. Uh, so that, I mean, that gives you some kind of context. That just gives the listeners an idea of where Ireland is at with some of these uh, kind of more legislative and legal aspects surrounding disability. That, uh, that although we were the first country in Europe to sign it, we were the last country in Europe to ratify it. Mm -hmm. um, and in actual fact, one of the aspects of the, and I don't want to get too technical, but one of the aspects of the UNCRPD, which has not been ratified, 
is the optional protocol. And that's the optional protocol is the reporting mechanism available to disabled people and those in the community uh, to report uh, on aspects that are not being implemented, uh, which is which is uh, really, it, it takes the teeth away uh, for disabled people. Uh, now, Ireland has a report due, Ireland, the country has a report due now uh, in the coming months on our, on our implementation. Uh, and I have a role in the IREC Disability Advisory Committee in um, assisting uh, with that aspect. Now, what has been absolutely fantastic is that the, uh, the UNCRPD has offered uh, disability rights activists, uh, such as myself, uh, and other uh, disability groups, uh, the, the, a framework um, and a rights-based framework in which to demand our rights uh, within the country. And I think that is really, really important. And so it also means that we can hold uh, government and agencies to account uh, and that um, it, and even even for my own research and for colleges, in fact, that the UNCRPD is a great framework for them to be using to ensure aspects like uh, social engagement takes place, to ensure that the voice of disabled people is heard within co in uh, colleges or in the country. Uh, so yeah, I think the the UNCRPD has been a game changer. However. The fact still remains that Ireland is, is very slow uh, uh, in terms of implementing uh, a lot of those changes. Uh, and that uh, really that there are large parts of it uh, where especially, and one of the areas I'm especially interested in is the representation and the voice of disabled people. And there's a lot of work that needs to be done in, in, in that. So for instance, uh, like for instance, disabled people organizations, which is covered under the UNCRPD. A disabled people organizations are uh, disability groups who are organized and run by disabled people. And in fact, in Ireland, that there are very few of those, believe it or not. Uh, and that really what we need to do is to ensure a mechanism where they are supported. But unfortunately, that is not happening. Uh, that uh, there are structures being put in place in other aspects now at the minute, uh, the, the participation uh, com committee, uh, which is going to be act, uh, acting as a conduit for to help the voice of the disabled people get through. Um, so yes, uh, to kind of summarize, the UNCRPD has been very important. It, it gives disabled people uh, a little bit more power, but unfortunately, there are large aspects that have not been implemented. And then I'm thinking uh, one, one commitment that really needs to be made is in regard to funding. Uh, so for instance, DPOs, disabled people's organizations in Ireland are not funded. Uh, and we've seen examples of like the platform for self-advocates who are an example of a DPO, they had their funding cut at one stage and that uh, they, nearly, they nearly went to the wall and th their future is still uncertain. Uh, so th those are some, some examples, I think. In terms of the wider context, um, in terms of higher education and my research, uh, that what we have seen is that European policies uh, have resulted in uh, European policies, government uh, legislation and funding uh, allocated to it has resulted in an increase in the number of disabled students 
attending higher education in Ireland. Um, and so, for instance, as I said, uh, that, that figure has went from about 1% in 2000 to 2003 to it's now at 7.1% now. So there has been a really significant increase in the number of disabled students attending higher education. And those students have been supported and the results show that those students have been successful. However, the focus has been very much on their academic requirements as opposed to their social engagement and wider holistic development. So like volunteering, uh, civic engagement, decision-making, like for instance, one of the findings in my research was that um, despite the fact that across the board, all participants felt that having your voice heard was key to a sense of belonging, senior managers, almost all senior managers were unaware of any disabled student in a senior leadership position in their institution. So it leaves significant questions as to, uh, well, why is that? And why aren't disabled people at the decision-making table? Uh, so th th in, that, in terms of higher education, but if we, if that's at undergraduate level, if we take a postgraduate level, and what obviously is, I'm part of that group, um, that there's only 2.4% of the total postgraduate student population uh, in, uh, 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 have a disability. Uh, whereas, as I said, it's 7.1 for the undergraduate population. And so there are serious questions there as to why uh, disabled students are not progressing uh, to postgraduate level. Yeah, it's a, a very interesting point because you think about it, potentially it could be mappability. You know, an undergraduate degree is relatively mappable. You can map the four years or whatever long experience. Every, every process is roughly the same and then you can adapt to add extra inclusions. But as you said, the postgrad is not, everyone's postgraduate journey is different. You know, master's program structured, maybe get away a little bit, but anything research masters or I particularly into PhD level, they're completely unique and completely kind of one of a kind. So that's no reason at all. But then again, you also have elements of, you know, a thesis or a PhD program is traditional. You know, you follow the same rules as before. You replete, replicate what was done by people before you and before you. And that process or model does not fit wider inclusion in general. You know, everyone's experience is completely different. So just even to map your own thesis research around the social inclusion and activity, that could probably map for everything bar the actual academic studying part of a postdoctoral, you know, whether it's specific access requirements, whether it's specific travel requirements, whatever it may be. So did you see similarity in your own kind of research focusing on the social? Did you see similar issues or requirements in other areas of that postdoctoral process or post postgraduate process? Sorry, you know, outside the academic structure. Yeah. So okay. So in terms of the postgraduate aspect, obviously, I can speak to my own direct experience. Now, my my just to be clear, my research my um, didn't focus on postgrads, but but I, I can talk about my own experience, and also I can talk about in terms of in Trinity College Dublin, we, uh, myself and a number of others, established a forum for staff PhD students with disabilities. And that uh, I understand it's one of the only such uh, currently in the country. And I think that is in itself is recognition of the fact that there isn't a wider understanding maybe of what needs to happen. And that what I learned, we'll talk about my own experience was that I started my PhD in, in 2012 uh, and I developed chronic um, uncontrolled asthma 
And as a result, my whole uh, journey took that bit longer. Uh, and that it was characterized by, as you say, a very untraditional uh, journey, uh, which required significant resilience uh, on my part, but, but also it required under a lot of understanding uh, and awareness uh, on the part of the college. Now, I was extremely lucky. I had a supervisor uh, in Professor Michael Shevelin, who was, who, you know, who has an awareness about disability. And he was able to support me through that. He had empathy, he had understanding, and he was able to advise me of the supports. And one of the key things that he would have done was that he uh, linked me in uh, with other postgraduate students uh, with disabilities, which in itself was really a support uh, and a help. But in terms of barriers to undertaking uh, that journey, uh, that one of the ones, of course, is around funding. Um, and that many of the funding processes are not disability proofed. Um, and they make requirements like, for instance, you, you'll get a, we'll say, for instance, a stipend of 16,000. Uh, and I've, I've currently read a thread uh, recently on Twitter uh, where that prohibited uh, somebody getting access to their uh, disability allowance. Uh, and that's uh, that, 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 and I also, in terms of another example, would be that in terms of those funding applications, you may be expected to undertake certain amount of teaching hours or lecturing hours. And that may not be possible if you are, uh, have a chronic illness and you're just trying to get your PhD done. So th there's an example straight away of a system that hasn't been developed to suit the needs uh, of all of its users. Um, I think as well, a, a real uh, barrier that I would have found is the whole publish or publish or die attitude. Mm -hmm. uh, that, uh, and uh, as a person who, again, who was at, you know, many bouts of illness, maybe spending, I spent three months in the National Rehabilitation Hospital at one stage, uh, that, you know, just getting my PhD work done was a challenge, let alone trying to write journal articles. But then there was no support there within the college around helping me to overcome that obstacle. Um, now, my supervisor was certainly a great help, but I'm just saying in the wider college. And you see, we can't have a situation where you end up dependent on, you know, one individual or you could be lucky to happen on that one individual. I was lucky. Um, but so many other people are not. So there's a lack of awareness. Uh, and that lack of awareness uh, and recognition uh, that disabled students at postgraduate level uh, are facing a range of barriers as a result of the fact that there hasn't been a culture of disabled people in academia or at postgraduate and research study level. Uh, so th these are some of the, the issues that exist. And I think one of the ones, and I've heard you guys talking about it regularly, it uh, was the milestones of a PhD. Yeah. And I know for every PhD student that hitting those milestones is such a challenge. Well, I hit none of them until I finally submitted. That was the only milestone I hit that I, the, day, the, day I, the day I submitted, right? There's hope for and, me. <laughs> <laughs> so, but, but I could, that can be extremely disheartening 
Yeah, yeah. It can be extremely disheartening, especially if, say, for instance, like we give you the example of where I spent three months, months in hospital, and then you get back and you start working again, and you're trying to read yourself back into your work, having been out of it, um, and then you miss the milestone. And then there are implications. Will you get an extension? Mm-hmm. You have to make this case thing for an extension. And this case must be made on hardship grounds, uh, we'll say, for instance. Uh, and th- that in itself is, is, is quite difficult. We just have to look at the systems and say, is that the right way of doing that? Um, and that was, they're, they're just some examples. I mean, there's a, a huge amount more, but uh, yeah. No, but you were right. Like you have to look at it and see. So it's arguably, I think the whole idea of education as a whole has been evolving way faster than any of us can be get used to. You know, look at at the minute, the whole world is plunged into online learning for good and for bad. You can do some amazing things with it, but also not. So as you said, milestones again, milestones in every kind of PhD students experience are a best guess at the beginning. And you just hope you can get to them. You hope the project doesn't disintegrate. You hope you're not beaten to, you know, release of what you want to do. You hope whatever. It's a hope. And again, it's the flexible. The system itself is very, very flexible. It tries to inflexible. Sorry. It tries to pattern match what you intend to do with what other people have done in the past. And that's that comparison is always going to lead to kind of failure. So I wonder, like, is there do you have any ideas over what how that could be improved you know what i mean as you said the only milestone that really matters is you submit eventually you know beyond that everything else is up to you and your supervisor and your university and how do we do it is that like is it a forum for you know postgraduate students that have specific requirements or do we just try and normalize this idea that every well not normalize it is perfectly normal but promote the normalization that everyone's path and journey is unique and it just needs to tailor and fit to them i think yeah absolutely and um, but at this point colin you also need to actually take positive steps to uh to develop a culture of disabled people being yeah. in postgraduate level um, and one of the uh, interesting things that we found uh, through our forum uh, was that uh, in Trinity College uh, was that disabled students were not disclosing some disabled students were at postgraduate level weren't disclosing their disability um, and that is because of perceptions in academia um, and fears around, around that and so there needs to be a number of steps there's a, a quite a, for instance I think w- w- one simple one is to have role models we need to start the colleges and the a higher education system need to actually develop some role models at postgraduate level to, to, to identify uh, that this can be done and this is how this student did it and their journey was an atypical journey as, as for them that it didn't kind of um, it didn't go maybe as, as they would have liked or, or whatever but but also there I think there needs to be other aspects as well for instance that I think we need to establish a quota uh, that um, within higher education for the progression of postgraduate students. Because now I know uh, that not everybody is in favor of the quota mechanism, and I accept that. Uh, But I do think it does help to focus minds and hearts. Um, And uh, that uh, if if 
we could do that, I think that would be assistance. And I think that we need to start to recognise that, yes, we have made gains at undergraduate level, but we now need to establish the quotas and make those gains at postgraduate level. But I also think needs to be done, we need to establish something like the 1916 bursary scheme, uh, which is currently in operation in higher education, which provides funding uh, for specific students or specific student uh, initiatives uh, to encourage uh, and uh, encourage their participation, uh, but also to promote their uh, engagement and uh, give them opportunities. So for instance, that there will be specific bursaries for disabled students at postgraduate or research level, which would give an exact uh, a funding system and scheme that could act as a template for other colleges. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think that would be helpful for them. Um, another example perhaps is uh, in terms of the, uh, we have Athena Swan there instead uh, uh, currently uh, in relation to uh, gender, quote, gender quotas within the college system. Let's widen that out. Let's include disabled staff in that. You know, one of the findings of my research on the social engagement of disabled students was around that disabled students like to see disabled staff and other disabled students in the college. Yeah. Uh, they wanted to be able to speak to someone who actually knew what they were talking about in terms of experience. Um, and I think that would also apply to postgraduate level. Wouldn't it be lovely to see uh, more academic staff with disabilities uh, who, uh, you know, that you, people can go to and look to uh, for guidance and advice? Um, yeah. But I, I, and just to kind of finish up uh, on this point was that I think as well, you mentioned about uh, peer groups. Um, we have found our peer group uh, in Trinity has been very helpful uh, and has really, uh, we, we have now established a full structure in Trinity. Uh, so we have now the first uh, GS, their first GSU disability officer. Uh, there hadn't been one before. We now have a, a fourth level postgraduate disability officer in the college uh, uh, that we now have a staff PhD disability uh, uh, subcommittee of our equality committee. So what we have provided is a structure from our forum to the GSU to the, the disability support services and right up to college board level to the equality committee. So I think that's really, really important as well. Excellent. So kind of an awful lot of like representation, you know, and the quota system. It's funny you mentioned, I know an awful lot of people don't like the quota system, but yeah. I heard it explained extremely well to me at um, a Women in Technology event in um, Boston. I think it was Sheryl Sandberg said it. It was something like, uh, imagine it as a pendulum. When the pendulum is out of whack, you need to give it an awful big push to get it back balanced again. But it naturally has to overswing before it can come back into balance again. And that's what she described the quota system like. And it made perfect sense to me. If we want to get balance and equality in all of our activities, it is going to have to overswing for a certain you know, portion in the beginning. And that's perfectly fine. That's the way it has to be. And in an ideal world, it'll all balance out equitably in the future. We just fingers crossed and hope it will. If it doesn't, we give it another whack to rebalance if need be. Yeah, we talk about forcing functions all the time, right? You know, so Colin, you had mentioned normalization. It's actually not a dirty word because there has to be that forcing function that says, listen, we've done things so pedantically wrong for so many years 
that there has to be this kind of, yeah, this kind of movement. And it has to sometimes be done at the end of a goat prod, if you will. Like, hey, administration, academia, you need to get moving and go this direction. You want it to become not another thought. It just becomes part and parcel of what you do. But in order to get to that place, we saw this with the social kind of social unrest this year around the world, you know, this foment that says this action happened, this is what's going to happen as a consequence to this and good or bad, right? But that was a forcing function that hopefully moves these things along. So Vivian, the stuff that you're doing through this process, your research is part of that forcing function in a positive direction to say, yeah, let's push that pendulum and let's get that going in the right direction. Quotas aren't bad. They're there, they're a rubric that we need to measure ourselves by because it brings this you know, diversity to our, our academic pool. And I wanna learn from folks that are way different than I am because that enlarged my worldview, so. Exactly, exactly. And then you mentioned peer mentoring, which I think is one of the most important aspects of it is I came from a, a non-standard path in the case of I'd not really known anyone in my larger family that had went to third level university. So I came in as a access student on the UCD access program, which I'm an undying fan of. And like, I remember something as simple as we had a on-campus orientation the week before university started. And there was other people like me that had no connection to third level. We got a week before everyone else just to get work out how things work, how you use the library, where all the buildings were. And that was transformational. All of us then, it was our first time on a university campus. We were unfamiliar with it. I didn't know the words, the terminology. And those were led by peer leaders. So people that had done it previously. So whenever you look and see somebody that's like you, however you want to see them as like you, it just normalizes and realizes it in your head. So yeah, all of them points I think are super, super interesting. Now I know you're aware that you have some questions for us you wanted to hit us. <laughs> I don't yeah. want to miss those questions. I think on this as well, Vivian, uh, before you go into those questions, or while you're going into those questions, I think it's, it's probably worth, you know, uh, just letting people kind of know and, and, and acknowledging that, you know, that ableism is still, you know, alive and kicking. Um, and I don't think it's something that we should pass over, you know, when we're having an opportunity to have this discussion as well. Uh, and, and, you know, having open and frank discussions about these topics, I think, should be welcomed, you know, within these spaces, because I think, I think at times, you know, I, I was even at some events, uh, I was actually at an event that, you know, we mentioned Gary Carney just before this, so as we were, we were chatting and, and Gary was on a panel uh, that, that we were running and um, someone in, in the audience actually just, you know, asked the question about, uh, and, and directed it at Gary about how do I talk to someone who has a disability was how it was phrased, you know, uh, and, and there, I, although the, the question and everything was quite a, a little bit shocking in, in a sense, um, Gary, I think, valued the fact that that person had the guts to ask it in the first place, although, you know, it shouldn't have had to be asked. Um, and um, so I, I think it, I think it's quite interesting to have conversations around that. And I don't know about your experience within that space and, and, and what you would recommend to try and start to, to, to break that down and, and, and disintegrate it and, and try and push ahead and, and just move on past all of that nonsense. Yeah, and I, and I think Colin, or sorry, David, uh, that uh, I think one aspect of that conversation part is that the current environment that we now all live in and inhabit um, is not really, is sometimes not that helpful in terms of having those kind of conversations and asking those kind of questions uh, that uh, because it can be a little hostile, you know, it's a bit polar 
uh, and it can make those conversations a little difficult. Um, I welcome those conversations. I welcome, uh, and you know, I would always say that I am not an expert on disability. I'm only an expert on my own disability. Uh, and I am not an expert on everything relating to human rights are, and I want to learn more. And sometimes I say stupid things because I didn't know any different. And uh, <laughs> I, I, yeah, no, and no, yeah. Yeah, but, but the current environment uh, can be so hostile to that, uh, that uh, it makes it more difficult. Um, but yes, uh, to, to, to your point, is that yes, we need to start having the conversations about ableism in academia in Ireland. Uh, and it is not a conversation that we're having. Um, that, uh, and the reason it goes back to an earlier point that Colin and I were chatting about was that there hasn't been a culture of disabled people in academia. Uh, and of course, ableism is right across Irish society. Uh, and that, uh, we, we, we note that in many of the, uh, if we just think of in terms of even the employment of disabled people, I know, David, you have experience in working in that, in that area too. Uh, and that disabled people are far less represented in the workforce uh, than, uh, than uh, the, the general public. And also, if we, I, I mean, an area that I work on a lot is the whole idea um, of civic representation and people involved in political representation. Mm -hmm. And disabled people are totally underrepresented there. Uh, and because why? Because again, that uh, there, there are ableist views and perceptions. And I was recently reading this study in the US where it showed that it, 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 um, disabled candidates are less likely to be voted for. Why? Because of that ableism, because of the outdated views and perceptions. The way in I, I view, the way I look again, I think that that needs to be targeted is by having disabled people in positions, in, in, in those uh, leadership positions and showing that, um, yes, that we, we are out there living our lives, that we do normal things like going for a pint and but also hold down a job and have a family. Uh, and but, but you see, this is the issue that currently that the barriers that exist within Irish society. So what are these barriers? I'm talking about these barriers. I'm talking about that if you are a wheelchair user and you go to get the bus into work, that uh, you can't because it's inaccessible. That these uh, barriers that exist make it impossible for disabled people to get into those positions. Mm. Uh, and that there are all, so that's why we need to put in the supports in place and we need to have the conversation. But the problem here is when that currently the conversation is taking place without disabled people involved. Mm. And that is a major issue in itself. Yeah. I, I know it's something so it's something that me and David have worked on an awful lot in the past is this idea of innovation and how you ask people that actually experience the problem on a daily basis. And we've done an awful lot of work with groups of people with varying forms of ability and disability in that space. And again, it's like, you're asking the wrong question. You know, if you, you were trying to solve a structural societal problem, and as you just mentioned, it's all the precursor things that are limiting the outcome we want. We can work all day trying to solve this specific issue, but it might be six or seven problem steps down the line. And like, 
I think that's the way humanity, unfortunately, has gone, where everyone wants to solve the problem, wants to develop a solution without actually knowing what the problem is. And then adding in, you know, ableism and representation, as you said, we have to be able to ask what some people may view as uncomfortable questions to find out what actually needs to be fixed to solve these much, much bigger problems in the long run. And, and just to note that for your listeners, I mean, we're talking about ableism here and we're not really identifying kind of what ableism is. Uh, ableism is similar to like uh, racism or discrimination of, uh, of that form. So it's, it's a similar term to like uh, to, to, in that. Uh, and uh, that's it. It's also, I think what is important uh, to note is that within academia, right, there, that there is this view of the typical academic. And the, the idea of the typical academic now is, you know, that uh, I suppose, and, and especially in this competitive academic environment that we now live in, uh, that, you know, disabled people may not fit into that, that you're expected to publish X amount of papers in a year, you're supposed to run X amount of conferences in the year, uh, that, uh, so there, there is this, typical view now uh, and, and has always been that's been there forever although it's become more competitive now and so we need I think and it, this is the question for you guys uh, around that is you know if we're talking about the typical human and the perfect person and all of that kind of thing and I, I'm just I have a question for you in terms of you know what do you think David it, it means to be to be human I, I, and where I'm coming with this question is and for all your listeners as well, I'm reading a great book at the moment um, by Dan Goodley uh, called uh, Disability and Other Human Questions. Uh, and uh, that's, uh, I just thought that, uh, you know, if we think of that, what, what, what does it mean to be human? That's a tough question. You are just going to leave us sitting here on, on this one. <laughs> well, 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 the okay, existential okay. question <laughs> of the day. There you go. Yeah. But, but I, I, I think as well, though, uh, David, in terms of that, uh, one aspect, uh, or Dave, uh, in terms of, um, you know, we're talking here an awful lot about uh, disabled people, and we're talking about humans generally now. But I mean, uh, that's it. I, I, I like the idea of in terms of that, you know, humans, uh, we are, we're interdependent and, you know, we're interdependent in terms of our sense of belonging, you know, and another really interesting question that was asked in that book was in terms of uh, are human beings dependent? Uh, and I think, you know, Dave, I think you might have some interesting points in that, it's especially in terms of technology and the development of technology now. Yeah, it's... Uh... <sighs> I mean, I can't do that question justice for the life of me. I can talk very, very, again, I'm not an expert in any of this stuff. I think uh, a lot of the podcasts I've listened to and a lot of people I've listened to is this concept of independence and interdependence, right? You know, and technology becoming something that, I mean, I, I suppose the running joke is that everything that we do with technology now is assistive technology. Um, Dr. Emma Smith, who we had on at the beginning of, Towards the beginning of two days in the doc talks, you know, works in assistive technology. And she makes a point all the time that everything that we do has technology as an assistive, as an assistive device, or, you know, even some of the analog things that we do. So there's this natural interdependence that we have now on technology and what it means to enjoin society and what it means to do things, right? The fact that we're having this conversation, I'm dependent on technology to have 
intentional community with you, Vivian, <laughs> with Colin, with David, right? All these little things come together. And so I know I'm wandering a far afield of the, of the actual question here, but I think what we do, you know, especially from a lot of even some of the work that my company does during the day is that we try to build things that are useful to humans, whether they be named as such, or they ultimately fulfill that purpose, right? You know, what we want to do is enable human progress in one, one way, shape, or form, whether it be through, you know, just something that you never see, you know, these backend data centers or whatever gets going, or the things that you use in a day-to-day -day basis, like laptops or like computing devices or things that help augment your reality to make them better. So that's the only answer I can give you right now without sitting down I and think, having to think, but. I think on this, and, and I think Dave, you might be touching on this as well. Like from my side, I think it's all about choice. You know, like, you know, even from our, from early stories about having the choice to, to do right or wrong or whatever it might be, you know, I think having that is, is so crucial in terms of what makes us human. And you mentioned the assistive technology and what they're assisting us to do is to have choice and to make that choice and to do that for ourselves. And then we choose to, to be able to connect in with people and to have those social elements. And I think that is a huge part of it uh, when it comes down to it. And I think that's something that um, within the, the, the community uh, that has been taken away from a lot of people. You know they haven't had the choice to be able to go and do things whether it's going to education or to do or to socialize and things like that and i think now we have the opportunity to be able to provide that and to to support within that space and, and i suppose that'll be where i'd be coming in from on, on mine my side anyway yeah well, really I, 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 <laughs> know, I, well I think in terms of i mean i think it's, you see it's really interesting because i think ye all um would have similar views in terms of uh, that that the interdependent nature of humans and uh, but yet uh, one of the goals that we establish for uh, young people is to be independent mm. everything is about and our society has been more driven towards the individual uh, and uh, the, our individualized content uh, we all have our own Netflix uh, and we all have our own Spotify and uh, that uh, we're all about uh, push to move out from home uh, and to be independent and yes we are dependent yeah 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 I, there you go yeah that's an old give you a good point so like uh, to, to me maybe then to kind of close us off would be on the case of my experience is i'll use an irish word now and i don't really speak irish at all but like <laughs> i don't know if you ever heard of it the concept of mehav i don't know if you ever heard of that Mehav. it's yeah. like yeah. mehav it's like it's yeah. just it, it's Again, how can you describe it? It's very hard to describe. It's just like the work you do for your community so the community betters itself. You know, and I learned this from my work down in Ivora, Cahersavine and Kerry. And it, it may have is a big thing in Irish history and it's a big thing in humanity. The things we do for each other just to make humanity better. You know, whether it's something as simple as, you know, picking up somebody a coffee when out, without expecting it or picking up your rubbish on the way home from, you know, just this community bond historically it used to be communities have come together to build houses or build boats or pull fishing nets or help somebody that's down and out and unlucky so i really love that and that experience for my time in these regions but on the flip side of that i've also spent an awful lot of time in the technology space you know silicon valley that sort of kind of a heavy cut and i find them very very polarly opposite I think if we could take the ambition and the drive and the use of technology from this Silicon Valley 
technology startup land and apply more concepts of Mehav to it, we could solve these complicated issues. And that's what I would like humanity to do. You know, the only problem worth solving is one that is difficult. You know, we want and other people will benefit from. I'm a big believer of if I was suddenly struck down dead tomorrow, I'd be delighted if I had left the world in a marginally better position than I found it in. And I will be happy. Don't really care about money or any of that other stuff on top of it once it's better. So to me, that's what I'd like kind of, and I think we touched on it an awful lot, whether it's academia, whether it's general society, whether it's business, whether it's university, we have this idea of a push for performance. And we also forget about the fact that we should be doing things to make the world better for everybody, regardless of what they are. You know, so I've lots of experience working in assistive technology that I have no need for, but it needs to exist. So we make it and we solve these other problems. So, you know, that's kind of my attempt at your, your very philosophical question. <laughs> I've been doing, doing far too much reading over Christmas. But if I, if I could just, uh, Colin, if I could just say uh, that at this point, as a, a person with a disability who has just completed their PhD, I just want to say to uh, other postgraduate students or PhD students, uh, out there that are undertaking are considering undertaking the process uh, that they should uh, avail of all the supports that do exist uh, no matter whether you're in a college in Ireland or in the co college in the US or wherever you are uh, you should certainly uh, approach your disability service uh, and avail of those supports um, because it, they're huge they're, they're all the same level of supports available as undergrad at undergraduate level uh, and also that the colleges are becoming more aware uh, and are tailoring to suit the postgraduate journey uh, so for instance you can get help in preparation for your uh, viva uh, viva and uh, that you can get help in terms of transcription and, and aspects like that so it is really worth having that conversation uh, so uh, and i'd advise people to certainly do that and to complete that journey and let's get more uh, disabled people uh, taking part in research about their experiences and the experiences of other disabled people and uh, bringing about uh, more of the voice of disabled people. David, Colin, any last thoughts before we wrap this up for today? That was a perfect. No, that was perfect. <laughs> <laughs> we couldn't have planned it better. So Vivian, it has been our honor to have you on today. I appreciate your thoughts, those tough questions. And I'm, I'm sure we'll circle around with you again because there's a lot more to unpack in this. And to those of us and you know, to those of us who have had the benefit of your company and to, the, to our listeners, you know, if there's questions that you want to ask and there's things that you need to push on, we're available. Uh, you can find us on Twitter. I'm sure Vivian is, <laughs> is remarkably available as well to help out with some of these things. And we want to hear from you. We want to know those pain points. We want to know the good and the bad and the ugly, if you will, of, of the process and of your journey. And we're here to kind of support that as much as we possibly can. So with that, from all of us at Two Days and a Doc and guest, awesome guest at that. We'll wait till next time and we'll have a great conversation. Thank you for listening to Two Days and a Doc. We hope you enjoyed today's guest. Join us next time as we have another conversation around how to do your PhD.